This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we learn how the racial and ethnic diversity of faculty at Colorado's universities impacts students. Plus, we'll learn about efforts to minimize light pollution across the state and why it matters. You can go up on Trail Ridge Road at night and cast a pretty significant shadow from the front range. And we hear how landlords are feeling about the federal moratorium on evictions potentially expiring. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Summer has officially begun, and so has wildfire season in Colorado. Firefighters are contending with several large blazes, including the Sylvan Fire south of Eagle, which broke out over the weekend and has grown substantially since then, pushed by strong winds and high temperatures. Crews are also responding to a fire in the Route National Forest south of Steamboat Springs. New research from the University of Colorado Boulder illustrates how residents in mountain communities can underestimate wildfire risk and overestimate how prepared they are. The research surveyed residents in the town of Bailey, southwest of Denver. Joe Burgett is the fire chief for the area. He says a lot of people don't fully understand what comes with having a home in the forest. We're surprised when we've got deer or elk in our yard or a bear in our yard or a mountain lion in our yard. And we're equally as surprised when fire comes to our community. When asked about their fire risk, only 22% of residents said their homes are at high risk from wildfire. But according to experts, that figure is closer to 61%. Burgett says he also worries that residents who are new to the Mountain West may not understand that local fire departments have limited resources. It's about to get easier for Colorado landlords to evict tenants who can't pay their rent. That's because a federal moratorium on evictions is set to expire at the end of the month. The Biden administration could extend it, but as KUNC's Matt Bloom reports, the potential change is already being welcomed by local landlords. As a landlord and property manager in Boulder, Todd Ulrich is used to dealing with issues of all types at his properties. Really anything on the residential spectrum from small studios up to multi-million dollar houses. But nothing could have prepared him for the pandemic. Several of his tenants lost jobs, missed payments, and accrued thousands of dollars in debt. That left Ulrich and his clients scrambling to pay their mortgages. One lady, uh, that was her income. She's retired. She's probably in her 80s. Um, So she was doing what she had to do, borrowing money and, you know, trying to get by. In the past, Ulrich would have considered evicting residents as a last resort. But because of various state and federal moratoriums, he and his clients had to find other ways to pick up the slack. A couple of people had to talk with their mortgage companies and see if they couldn't work out a payment plan. A couple of them did have some negative credit, uh, credit reporting impact them. Uh, some late fees, certainly. Colorado's ban on evictions expired at the beginning of the year. Ulrich and many other landlords are now hopeful the federal moratorium is next. Their main argument is that it's no longer necessary. The first piece that's important to this is collection rates have been high throughout the virus closures and remain high today. Drew Hamrick is with the Colorado Apartment Association, the state's largest trade group for landlords. The collection rate for Colorado was 97.9%, which, I mean, just on the face of that, that, that will probably strike you as a very high figure. State and federal emergency rental assistance programs have been a big part of keeping that figure high, Hamrick says. 
there's also tens of millions of dollars still available. So any resident that's having uh, difficulty paying their rent should be exploring those programs and should be getting their landlord uh, in the loop on that early because it is it's a slow process. On the renter's side, advocates worry that without the moratorium, there's nothing stopping landlords from pursuing an eviction, even if renters are applying for assistance. But this could play out so many ways, right? That's Zach Newman. He's an attorney with the COVID-19 Eviction Defense Project, a statewide nonprofit that works with renters. So you could have a circumstance where people apply for rental assistance, landlords wait to evict, and the money that's available takes care of a lot of the problem. You could have mass evictions. You could have a lot of people receive the notice and then they say, look, you know, I've been not able to pay for a while. I'm not going to go to court. I'm not going to fight it. I'm just going to move out. That uncertainty doesn't bother Thornton landlord Debbie Stobie. Over the past year, she's become more selective of who she rents one of her two dozen units to. I think the way landlords have adjusted overall is they don't take anybody risky. She's more concerned about several new renter-friendly laws the Colorado legislature just passed. They cap late fees, extend the period tenants have to make up missed payments, and draw the time it takes to process an eviction in court. Together, she says they make it more difficult to run small-scale rental businesses. So we turn away much more people than we'd ever had before, and we'll continue to do so. Those will take effect this fall. The federal government's moratorium on evictions is scheduled to expire on June 30th. Matt Bloom, KUNC. Several communities and states across the U.S. are banning or are considering bans of the academic study of structural racism. In Colorado, U.S. House Representative Lauren Boebert has been voicing her staunch opposition to critical race theory, a decades-old academic concept that, in short, examines social structures and how they relate to race and racism. But as we turn to education today, we're going to look not at curriculum or the debate surrounding it, but at the people who are tasked with teaching it at Colorado's colleges and universities. Jason Gonzalez covers higher education for Chalkbeat Colorado, and he recently reported on the racial and the ethnic diversity of tenured faculty across the state's four-year colleges. He's with us now to talk about what he found and how it relates to the students who attend these institutions. 3,500 professors have tenure across these colleges. You looked at the racial and ethnic diversity of these professors. Tell us what you found and how it relates to the students at all these schools. So what I found is no school has fewer than 70% white faculty. Meanwhile, the diversity of student bodies uh, across the state have become even more so as 64% of all students are white at this point. And there's just underrepresentation of tenured faculty generally. Hispanic males and females largely underrepresented. Um, Hispanic students now make up about 20% of all the state's university students, but less than 8% of all tenure professors across the state are Hispanic. And then of uh, Black women, there are only 15 of the 3,500 professors, and another 38 of those are Black men. That matters to students because uh, experts, advocates say, um, it affects the st- students' sense of belonging and whether they see themselves at those colleges and you know just their general potential for going into the workforce and being confident about the jobs that they're looking for. 
For those who experienced a school career in which they saw teachers who looked like them and didn't really experience a lack of representation, can you tell us a little more about why that matters and how these disparities can affect students? Yeah, especially for those students who uh, experience disparities, it's it's really one of those things where I hear across the state uh, from students specifically that the culture of a school and representation at a school really impact whether or not they want to go somewhere. And depending on where they want to go, uh, as far as a university, that can affect the type of education they're getting or um, the degree path that they choose then can affect their their long-term earning potential. Generally, research has shown that faculty diversity really, like I said, promotes a sense of belonging on on schools and students really can see themselves as, as, as just being a part of the community. And that really is important from what research says and from what students say of getting them to the graduation finish line. Well, for this story, you spoke with Maria del Carmen Salazar. She's a professor of curriculum, instruction, and teacher education with the University of Denver. What insight did she have on this issue of representation in Colorado? So she really was able to bring in the different research for us about um, what what diversity promotes. But I think one of the things that I really um, took away from it was a specific story she told me about um, teaching a class and a student, a Hispanic student. She's Maria del Carmen Salazar. She is actually a Denver Public Schools graduate first-generation Mexican immigrant who, um, you know, is now a tenure professor at the University of Denver, uh, really considered an expert in her field and and, um, very eloquent. But this student that came up to her, she's from the community that she grew up in, said, hey, um, this just opens doors for me. And and you don't realize the doors that you have opened for people like me. And so I think that's one of the things um, that I took away from what she had to say from our interview is that this affects students on a personal level and they can see themselves in the, the professors that are teaching them. I want to zoom into what I think is kind of a key piece in all of this, at least a key piece to understand. We're talking about tenured professors, and tenure comes with a lot of distinct advantages. Can you explain what tenure is and the sort of weight that tenured professors carry around at their institutions? Tenured professors um, carry a lot of weight at their institutions. They have job security that really it's it's very hard to... Um, fire these type of professors, and they have the academic freedom to um, express themselves and to do research that they want to and and really do the things that um, sometimes, you know, if you look at critical race theory right now and some of the things that are going on, um, you know, across the country, they have the ability to go research those things and and figure out why that's important to communities and people. Um, And that can be, as you can see, politics can say that's something that we don't want to take part of, um, whereas they can have the freedom, um, no matter which direction their university takes to do what they want as far as researching those things and trying to better their communities. From your perspective, Jason, as a higher ed reporter, what do you see as the overall key takeaways here? What are you going to keep an eye on? I think the key takeaways for me have been um, just trying to uh, put into perspective the things that I hear from students. Um why representation matters. And I, I want in doing this story, I wanted to really focus in on um, 
these tenure professors who, who really carry the most weight at their, their universities, who are at the pinnacle of their career and what impact they have uh, generally on the students. And I think for me, um, just walking away with a sense of, okay, this is what students tell me and what, you know, the research and what, what professors say is really uh, makes sense to, you know, just our general challenges in the state of getting students into college and graduating them. This is a cog and a piece within that. And so that's really where my mind sort of took me in asking this question. Um, and I'm going to just keep an eye on if this is changing. And um, also, I, I, I there's research within there here and also uh, numbers within here that we weren't able to report on just for the story of who's on tenure track and then the makeup and diversity of, of the general rest of the facility, faculty, whether it's associates or uh, associate faculty or others, you know, just how that makeup looks. And so who's really at the, the bottom and who's at the top and the way that kind of looks, I really want to keep an eye on that and um, see what else, you know, the state uh, and universities do to try to be more representative of, of their communities because they say it's important, students say it's important. And so we'll see uh, the direction this takes. Jason Gonzalez reports on higher education for Chalkbeat Colorado. You can find a link to his reporting on all of this at our website, KUNC.org. Jason, thanks as always for speaking with us. Thank you so much. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Colorado is a global leader in preserving dark night skies. This year alone, Florissant Fossil Beds National Monument, Mesa Verde National Park, and four other mountain towns were recognized for their stargazing potential. While these remote locations are good at preserving their starry views, residents of the Front Range would have to help out the state's largest national park. KUNC's summer science intern Ashley Picconi has more. The night sky above the Front Range has a handful of stars at any given moment. The Big Dipper probably makes an appearance, and depending on the time of month, the bright moon might join in. There's no hint of the cloud-like Milky Way. But about an hour west of Colorado Springs in Florissant Fossil Beds National Monument, the galaxy is clearly visible. The monument's lead interpreter, Jeff Wolin, says that's a big draw for visitors. Most folks come here during the day, and they see petrified tree stumps. But a big part of our ecosystem here, of, of the ecosystem, is the night sky. They say half the park is after dark. The monument was recently designated a dark sky park by the International Dark Sky Association, which took about three years to complete. Wolin says it wasn't easy. Part of that is we have to go through literally every light bulb in the National Monument and then identify what kind of light bulbs they are and, you know, are they motion lights? Do they come out at night? Do they point up? Do they point down? And then come up with a plan of how to replace the ones that we need to. Location-wise, Wolin says the monument got a bit lucky. They are close to an urban area, but just far enough away. And the mountains, including Pikes Peak and the Rampart Range, block a lot of light coming from those sources. And so it ends up being kind of a unique locality where we have pretty dark skies. But other Colorado parks are not so fortunate. Rocky Mountain National Park's Mountain Views brought in over 3 million visitors last year. And Public Affairs Officer Kyle Patterson says there are places in the park that also have dark night skies. 
but not everywhere. When you think of Rocky Mountain National Park, you know, we range from 8,000 feet in elevation to the summit of Long's Peak. So it really depends on, you know, if you're on the top of the mountain or if you're above tree line, if you're down in meadows or if you're in maybe a wilderness campsite. A dark sky designation isn't totally off the table. Patterson says they've considered applying in the past, but for a large park with many projects, the process would have stretched the staff thin. They have also been updating some light fixtures to be dark sky friendly. But Kurt Fristrup of the Night Skies Division of the National Park Service says Rocky faces another big obstacle. You can go up on Trailways Road at night and cast a pretty significant shadow from the light from the front range. There are glowing bubbles of light along the horizon east of the park from Fort Collins, Greeley, and Denver. Patterson agrees that some of the best views in the park have some of the worst light pollution. Places like Rainbow Curve, for instance, which is a, a pull-out overlook on the east side of the park. In those places, you're gonna see more of that, you know, potentially city glow. The front range might mess up stargazing, but the light pollution also has far worse effects. Fristrup says it's harmful for wildlife and not just in the park. Having light cycles that are, you know, as close as possible to the original light cycles is really important for sleep, for predator-prey interactions. There's no piece of nocturnal ecology that light doesn't touch. Unnatural light can force animals in or out of areas they wouldn't normally visit. It's also been shown to disorient migrating birds. Just like a lamp draws in a moth, a bird can be drawn to a lit-up building. And Fristrup says that harmful light is just wasted energy. It gets in the way of astronomy. It gets in the way of visitor enjoyment of, you know, night skies and the stars. In fact, our communities here on the Front Range would have a spectacular night sky if we were just a little smarter about our outdoor lighting. But there is hope. There are plenty of options for bulbs that don't contribute to light pollution. Even shielding or directing a light towards the ground can help. Cities like Fort Collins now require that every new building uses dark sky-friendly lighting. And switching to a better light has immediate results, whether you are stargazing in your backyard or at a national park this summer. Ashley Picconi, KUNC. Colorado Governor Jared Polis declared June as Dark Sky Month in Colorado. In all, the state has 13 certified dark sky places. A documentary series airing on Rocky Mountain PBS highlights environmentally harmonious building projects in Colorado. Paul Kreischer is host and executive producer for the project. He's here to tell us a bit more about that documentary project and the current state of such buildings here in Colorado. Paul, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thank you so much, Aaron. It's a pleasure to be on. So when we talk about a, an environmentally harmonious building, what does that mean? It's a building that would be taking in as much of its energy that it uses there on site and ideally emitting no emissions. Also that the water that you'd be using ideally would come as much from a sustainable method or a local source of water. You know, it's like, again, using water very smartly um, would be a way to be certainly in harmony with our climate here. And then additionally, there should be really good indoor air quality and there should be really good comfort. Building to these standards, uh, passive house or net zero energy, that 
costs more money. So what do those upfront added costs look like, first of all? It's going to depend project by project, you know, how much more costs be added on. But you can use good rules of thumb that typically it's going to be 10, maybe up to 18% more on the cost of doing something new uh, that would be passive house compliant and towards net zero. But there are great rebates that come from local utilities, such as Fort Collins Utilities, XL Energy, others to help buy down many of the improvements people make to the envelope, as well as to the mechanical systems, and as well as to the solar. So I can bring that cost down very nicely. And if you're looking at the operating costs over time, you know, of course, the utility bills are much lower or zero. <laughs> um, you know, I have the pleasure of that in my home that we haven't paid an electric bill in four years. And we got a nice credit still with XL Energy just by having good insulation and a solar PV system. But basically, you know, you can get those costs down very low and also reduce maintenance is one that's oftentimes overlooked that homes that are built to meet passive house and built in a net zero energy model way seem to be having less maintenance issues where there's less callbacks to repair the furnace or less callbacks to address details in it. So, so anyway, so there's ways to reduce, you know, that upfront cost that way. Given that it is more expensive to build a home or a building like this, why do people opt for these more expensive buildings when they could save by skipping, you know, some of these cool uh, but expensive features? It's been a range of things. I mean, there seems to be, you know, not surprisingly, there's a common thread of people saying being better towards the planet. But, you know, there's different, you know, varying degrees of that and different reasons behind it. One group that we've interviewed, well, it's a church, <laughs> First Universalist Church, and they're doing it because it's part of their call to stewardship. Um, to be better stewards of the environment, for to care for creation. You know, one example for sure is a multifamily project that we have in the first episode that's in Longmont, Colorado. And the developer, Gary Kinsey, he told me, he said, Paul, I can't look my grandson in the face if I'm not part of the solution as opposed to part of the problem. You know, that's one reason. Other reasons is like that we've dealt with is Con Frank, one of the people we interview, he's a tinkerer, inventor. He's the type of guy that took apart his you know, parents' toaster and didn't put it back together properly type of thing. But he's just one of those type of people. But most of the time, he did seem to put things together well. But anyhow, but he did this with homes, and he found that he could find better ways to do, this is getting nerdy, but into the heat load calculation side, better than many of us engineers. You know, his, his training's not in engineering. He's just done it for 40 years. He was trying to prove that you could build for middle-income people a net zero energy home that was incredibly high performing. Have you found that Coloradans have a unique why that might be different from um, people pursuing sustainable building projects in other parts of the country? Yeah, I'd certainly say there's there's a strong part of our Colorado culture. You know, we're people that love being outdoors. We love you know playing in the mountains, playing any place outside. So there's a lot of people that are like, I love this space. So what can I do to help be a part of a solution as opposed to part of the problem? So there's more and more, more people, you know, saying, yeah, that matters how my house performs or the building that I'm in or what I drive or, you know, things like that. So, so that's a very big part of it. And we're learning more and more here in the state about passive house um, performance, you know, as far as the very 
high level of insulation, high air tightness. And we're learning from places like, of all places, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania has really been a leader in that. And uh, Vancouver. Do you see these kinds of building projects gaining momentum here in Colorado? Yeah, w- without question. I, I'd say when I started work that I was doing in the mid-90s, it was very, very rare <laughs> to uh, see projects that were being built in a high sustainability way. Now it's becoming so much more the norm. Everything from where building codes have shifted to help encourage it, to incentives from utilities, to encourage it to just awareness. So we're just seeing more and more of that. So there's increased education and just awareness that's moving that along. So it's, I really hope, honestly, that Heart of the Building is one of the little lights that helps move it forward where it becomes the norm and not the exception. But um, we hope that our, sharing these stories, people are saying, I could do that. You know, I could, if I'm going to build a home or if I'm going to buy a building, I need to be looking for people that have done these types of performance-based ways of building. So I get the best of what I can get from my builder. Paul Kreischer is host and executive producer of the Heart of a Building documentary series on Rocky Mountain PBS. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Erin. The next three episodes of the documentary series Heart of a Building will be hitting the airwaves this fall on Rocky Mountain PBS. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we hear why officials in Colorado declared a mental health state of emergency for children. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.